But first of all, Bruce Shapiro, contributing editor with The Nation magazine, exec director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University, and Erin Haynes. Erin is editor-at-large of The 19th with a little asterisk. She's an award-winning journalist of two decades' experience, previously written for the LA Times and the Washington Post. Now, let me explain. The 19th Amendment granted women the right to vote and the 19th recognises that many people are still excluded from voting, so it remains unfinished business. I welcome you both. Erin, obviously, the overturning of Roe versus Wade was a huge moment for 2022. How do you see the consequences of that decision playing out politically, well, over the next two years? Well, Philip, first of all, thank you so much. It's great to be with you and and uh, geez, you've set the bar kind of high for us to maybe make make one of those best of episodes. So I'll try to live up to expectations here. Listen, uh, to answer your question, I think that we saw the consequences at the ballot box in these midterm elections. And I will say that at the 19th, this is something that we really did see coming, talking to voters really leading up to and on the other side of the Dobbs decision this summer, we knew that women uh, and marginalized people who were going to be disproportionately impacted by uh, the abortion ruling were going to be the deciders in this election. And that's really a lot of what we saw on uh, election night just last month. So, you know, while you had people in major media outlets kind of predicting this Republican red wave, uh, that's not where we were because we really remained kind of centered on the voters and the organizers and the experts and the activists and the candidates who really told us pretty directly that abortion was on the ballot in 2022. And so I think that that is, that is what we what we saw and, and, and we will probably continue to see that playing out in terms of, of policy at the federal and state level. But also, uh, you know, with, with uh, ongoing legal challenges that, that continue to kind of change the landscape. We should observe that women of colour led the debate, but of course yes. they are disproportionately affected by Absolutely. the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Yeah, and, and, and it was women of colour who were really kind of sounding the alarm about uh, reproductive rights and reproductive access long before we ever got to uh, the Dobbs decision, long before we ever got to these trigger laws that have been unfolding uh, over the summer and into the fall. It was women of color because they were the ones, you know, really not only who were being disproportionately impacted by reproductive access, but also who uh, are, are the ones that are disproportionately experiencing maternal mortality, right? And so these are very real, very existential issues that they have tried to um, raise the alarm about it and have really been on the front lines of because they really are experiencing the impact most directly. We'll be coming around to Kamala Harris a little later, but she's been campaigning on the issue relentlessly, hasn't she? Absolutely. And I wrote about that quite a bit during uh, the midterm election because, you know, the vice president is somebody who really kind of saw what was coming ahead of the Dobbs decision. And so when that decision came down, she was somebody who was responding almost immediately uh, from the administration on the stakes of what this could mean and even um, some of the unintended or unforeseen consequences of, of what the fall of Roe and, and a post-Dobbs reality might look like and what that might mean for uh, for this country and for a lot of, of the women in this country. And I think her lived experience, not just as a person of color, as a woman, uh, but also as somebody who 
was, uh, you know, in the legal uh, profession who spent a, a lot of her career focused on issues of gender and sexual violence, women's rights and access. I, I think she was really somebody who was pretty uniquely positioned to respond to this moment and uh, made that really really made that case kind of nonstop through the midterm elections. I'm talking to Erin Haynes, editor-at-large of the 19th, which is a little asterisk after it. Now let's have our Shapiro with Bruce. Bruce, uh, a number of contentious issues are, are coming up before the Supremes, and I just want to say one phrase to you. Wedding cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh just on, uh, on on Monday of this week, the Supreme Court heard um, a, a fascinating argument involving whether a, uh, a a wedding designer, a graphic designer in Colorado, who says she serves uh, anybody uh, with her work who who will come in, but objects to having to make wedding invitations for same-sex marriages, ask for protection of that under the free speech clause of the First Amendment. And this is the kind of descendant, the child of um, the Supreme Court's famous decision a few years ago in which marriage equality was uh, endorsed nationwide, in which a baker was told, no, you cannot discriminate against same-sex couples. Um, here, it's a rather narrower decision. The court with a conservative majority is, is reconsidering some of those principles. But, you know, it, it's interesting. This ties in very closely to what Aaron was talking about, about the, Do the Dobbs decision and abortion rights. Um, and something similar has happened with marriage equality, an issue that was, you know, is at the heart of the religious rights objections to where the country is going, and yet, which has enormous popular support. Um, just last week, in a very unusual, these days, bipartisan move, 61 uh, U.S. senators, um, Democrats plus 11 Republicans, voted to incorporate marriage equality into federal law. And this tells you that even Republicans in the time of Trump, Republicans who are worried about their future, who are worried about um, young voters, are worried about unaffiliated suburban voters, are feeling a pull towards some kind of social moderation. Um, whether that influences the Supreme Court, we'll need to see in the arguments before the court, even conservative justices seem to be trying to tailor their arguments fairly narrowly, um, not wanting to perhaps overreach in a way that the Dobbs decision did. It's a, a very interesting year passed in that way and certainly a very interesting year to come. Back to you, Erin um, Haynes. The House will be controlled by the Republicans next year and uh, Nancy Pelosi has announced this time to um, stand down as House leader. What were her major legacies in your view? Well, I, I think that um, she is rightly being re remembered uh, for her leadership as, as one of the most formidable politicians of our time. 
And this is somebody who waited until her her children were were fairly uh, older, further along before she even ran for office, uh, as as was the case with with many women who ran for the women that ran for office in her day. And now you have you know a record number of of women. Uh, who are in office, I think that that is in part a testament to her leadership and her example. Uh, but also, I mean, this is somebody who knew how to count votes, obviously who shepherded President Obama's landmark legislation on health care uh, through the House of Representatives. This is somebody who also um, not just worked with presidents, but was a foil to uh, former President Trump uh, a lot of times. And, and she will certainly be remembered for her role in, in this past administration, as well as uh, helping to navigate the financial crisis that President Obama inherited when he took office and the crisis around uh, the pandemic uh, that President Biden inherited when he took office. And so, you know, Nancy Pelosi being a first, uh, but somebody who represented that not just in terms of symbolism, but also in terms of substance, I think uh, does leave behind uh, certainly very big shoes to fill, but also in stepping aside and making room for younger leadership. I think that is also an example of how she is choosing to lead even on her way out. Erin, tell me about or a little bit about uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the the new leader of the House Democrats. Yes. So uh, Hakeem Jeffries uh, making history in his own right. Uh, first uh, black man uh, to be leader uh, coming in behind Speaker Pelosi. And this uh, was something that uh, certainly a lot of observers on the Hill uh, saw coming. I mean, he was well positioned to uh, step in to this role. But uh, really what is interesting is that he leads a, a trio of leadership that none of which includes white men for the first time in our country's history. These are also leaders that are uh, quite a bit younger than the leadership that, that that has been in the House for the past several cycles. And so that uh, will also be really interesting to see just in terms of representation that maybe is even more reflective of who and where we are as a country. Back to you, Bruce. Uh, Hillary Clinton believes that Biden will run again, but if he doesn't, that Kamala Harris is well positioned to make a run. Do you share that view? Well, she's as well positioned as anyone, but that doesn't necessarily translate into a a, a betting matter. Um, certainly, she would be seen as President Biden's heir, um, but there also are plenty of other national Democrats who are eager to try. Um, you know, Pete Buttigieg is certainly eager to try. Gretchen Whitmer, again, to go back to the states, is looking to. Um, carve out some national uh, terrain uh, off of her opposition to the Dobbs decision and her success getting abortion rights on t- into the state constitution. Um, there, are, there, there are plenty of others. The challenge that uh, Kamala Harris has, I think, is that she has not really um, had the kind of opportunity that Biden had, oddly enough, when he was vice president, to define herself um, as an ally of but independently of the administration. I think she's still seen in some democratic circles as um, a technocrat rather than a leader. Remember how poorly she did perform in the primaries um, in 2020. 
right? So, you know, she's seen as someone who brings a lot of strengths, name recognition, brings the, um, the allegiance of uh, voters and the allegiance of communities that have supported her in the past, but not necessarily the kind of automatic um, presidential heir that, let's say, Richard Nixon was to Dwight Eisenhower, for example. Erin, um, you, 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 you spoke to Hillary Clinton recently. She thinks that uh, Biden will run. Does she think that's a great idea? Well, she does think that that President Biden uh, is going to run for for reelection, and she believes that that if if that is the case, that Vice President Harris is going to be on the ticket as his running mate. But she she told me that if he does not run for reelection, uh, that that Harris is is pretty well positioned to win the the, the presidential nomination for Democrats, but also that she's going to have to fight for it, right? Uh, in the same way that Mike Pence, who seems to be potentially eyeing a, a 2024 bid himself, former vice president, uh, is is probably not going to be alone in 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 his effort. Although uh, obviously not um, talking about him in the context of an incumbent. But uh, but but um, Secretary Clinton also said that she thinks that, that Vice President Harris is more than up to the task. She said, you know, talked about her, her record and her accomplishments um, alongside President Biden, who, you know, said that he was going to treat her as uh, a governing partner. But, but I do think to Bruce's point, you know, she has had some issues in her portfolio that, that have seemed fairly intractable. I mean, particularly around Issues like voting rights uh, and kind of the root causes of uh, immigration that that continue to um, be a challenge. She'd have to overcome what is currently a 52% disapproval rating. Now, back to your principal concern. Your news platform acknowledges that many people are still excluded from the democratic process. Where do you see the biggest threats to disenfranchisement and uh, democracy coming from? Well, you know, I think, Philip, what we what we know is that um, the big lie, uh, raising questions about uh, election fraud, which really, you know, at their root are about who uh, should or, or or is allowed to participate in our democracy, is something that extended far beyond the 2020 election. And to the extent that that remains a cancer on our democracy, uh, I think that that uh, the potential for women, for people of color, for other marginalized folks to to be disenfranchised uh, remains in our country. And, and to the extent that you have people, uh, voters, rejecting that as something that they do not see as compatible with democracy uh, will continue to keep our democracy intact. But, but uh, I think that, um, you know, you did have quite a number, several hundred election deniers on the ballot across this country headed into the midterm election, although many of them were rejected, some number of them were uh, on the ballot. And so I think that that is something that should be concerning to everyone who is concerned about our democracy, regardless of party. Bruce, as we wind up, please tell me, please, 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 that the Donald has made it impossible for Republicans to continue to stand by him after his rants about the Constitution. Oh, if only it were so. Look, Donald Trump has overtly said what, of course, has been implied in everything he's said for the last 24 months. But he now has overtly said that he thinks uh, his purported exclusion, uh, the purported fraud that kept him from being reelected, is a reason to terminate the Constitution, um, which, you know, you would think would be 
the stake, the the self-inflicted stake in the heart of any self-respecting vampire. But um, the reality is that while some Republicans have stepped up and said completely, completely rejected this, an awful lot of Republicans, including you know moderate Republicans who are the chair of the Republican House. Uh, caucus, for example, have said a Republican House conference have said, uh, "Well, we'll worry about that when the election comes." Or he says a lot of crazy things. There's still an awful lot of protection of the president, of the ex-president, going on. And to go to Aaron's point, this ties in very closely with the prospect of voter suppression. The intellectual failures of the Republican Party, which created the vacuum that led to Donald Trump, are still very present. And Donald Trump, despite calling for the termination of the Constitution, is, unless he is indicted, (laughs) um, likely to be the Republican nominee. That's the reality for Republicans, and that's the reality for Democrats, too, which is another reason that I, too, agree that Joe Biden, the one person who has beaten Donald Trump, is likely to feel very motivated to run again. And that's a wrap. Aaron Haynes, a privilege to talk to you. Aaron is editor-at-large at the news platform, The 19th. And uh, thanks, Bruce. Bruce Shapiro, of course, a contributor to the program for such a long time. Bruce, thank you for all your efforts throughout the year, and I look forward to renewing our acquaintance in the next year. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.